Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 107, where we interview Kevin Ha from Financial Panther and get his story of financial independence. It only takes up a lot of time if you're like really going out of your way to do it. But if you're like kind of incorporating it into the stuff you're already doing, then it really doesn't feel like you're like adding hours to your day, you know? So it's like if you're walking a dog during your lunch break, does that count as you working a half hour or like, was that like time that would have been spent doing nothing anyway, right? Same with like my commute home. It's like if I'm doing delivery on my way home, is that work or is that like I'm just getting paid to go home? Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my fantastic co-host, Scott Trench. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else and show you that by following the proven steps, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life. Wherever you are in your financial or life journey, you can begin rapidly moving towards a position capable of generating a great income, saving a huge percentage of that income, and setting yourself up to make larger and larger investments on your way to financial freedom. And whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, we'll help you put yourself in a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams. Scott and I are super excited to announce that we have a new Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash BP money to join. And we would like to make sure that we are giving you the show that you want to listen to. We're thinking hard about ways to make this show even better. And we really want your feedback. So if you would take five minutes out of your day and go to biggerpockets.com slash money survey, there's a few questions to answer. It's a very quick thing. And that way it helps us make the show what you're looking for. Please do join that Facebook group. We love just chatting about uh, whether it's the show, general money topics or whatever, or, or or even just terrible jokes. We'll be in it and lively and, and engaging in there. And we'd love to, to chat with you guys and get to know you a little better. Well, I will say that 50% of us like the jokes. 50% of us like the jokes. That's right. So, <laughs> And if you have a question. We'll have a dental pun off. Uh, you'll see why that's relevant later in the show today. Uh, <laughs> So we'll, we'll drill those into you. Brace yourselves. All right. Before we bring on Kevin, the financial panther, you know the drill. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, 
we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Kevin, the financial panther, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I'm so excited you're here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I am really interested in getting your money story because you are a licensed, is it licensed attorney, practicing attorney? How do you say that properly? Yep. So I was a practicing attorney for five years. Now I'm still a licensed attorney, but uh, I don't practice anymore. Okay. At all? At all. I don't practice at all. (laughs) Do you have any sort of income? I do. It comes from like my own things I'm doing. Okay. Okay. So you don't have like a real job. Right. I'm like a bum now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, great. Oh, so welcome to the Financial Panther uh, Unemployed Bum Show. Kevin. Exactly. Kevin, tell us where your journey with money begins. Yeah. So um, for me, you know, I come from a family with uh, two immigrant parents. And so they both came here. Both are not like college educated or anything. My, uh, Dad owned a Chinese restaurant, like a Chinese takeout restaurant. And my mom uh, just worked in like an office, um, kind of as an administrative type person. And so growing up, we weren't like, we didn't like struggle or anything. But obviously, as immigrants, they're like, they were frugal. They were uh, pretty non-spendy with their money and uh, generally pretty good with it. They didn't ever talk about money with us, though, other than telling us, not to spend it, which I think probably happens to a lot of people. And so we really didn't know very much about anything with money growing up. And so, you know, we, a lot of the stuff we were focused on was, you know, get education, get a good job, the very traditional immigrant type thing that you would do. So, you know, so I went to college. I was fortunate enough that they were able to pay for my college. And then afterwards, I went off to law school. And for that one, they, couldn't afford to pay for that one. So I had to take out student loans for that. When I did do that, I uh, got a half scholarship. So it cut my student loan balance down by a little bit. And I did that. And then when I first got my real job, I like kind of realized, hey, I need to start like learning something about how money works. Because I had a paycheck for the first time. And you know, I'm like 26 now with like my first real paycheck. And I really didn't know anything. And so that's kind of how I first started like learning about money and kind of like trying to do something with it. Whereas before I was kind of taking whatever money I had and just spending it all and not really having anything to show for it, (laughs) which is a pretty common thing, I think, for a lot of people. Yes, the American, uh, not the American dream so much as just the American way of life. So yeah, you assimilated really well. Good job. (laughs) We we don't talk about money for 
ever in, in your life. And then just one day you get a paycheck and you figure out what to do with it after it, all of that. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like, you know, there's don't, no one talks about it. And, you know, like I never knew what my parents made. I had no idea if we were like, we were doing fine, but I had no idea. Like, do we have money? Like, how are my parents doing? And even today, I have no idea. Like, I assume they're doing fine, but I really don't know. No, I'm, I remember this is very embarrassing. So, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell it anyways. But I remember my first paycheck, and it wasn't after law school or anything. So it was like my $48,000, a year job out of college to get my first paycheck. And previous to that, I had always thought about dollars, you know, partially in terms of how many cases of natural light uh, you could purchase <laughs> with those dollars. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like 200 cases of natural light. <laughs> natural <laughs> I, light I, beer? That's right. Yes. Natty Light. Oh, Scott. It's like the official beer of college. I'm being too formal. Yeah. (laughs) And so that was my like, and I was like, what do I do with this now? It's so much money. I've never had anything like this to spend in my life before. What do I do? Anyways, so so what was your balance sheet in position uh, when you got this first paycheck? You had student loan debt. What was the kind of nuts and bolts of that situation? Yeah. So my student loans afterwards were uh, $87,000, which is actually pretty good because most lawyers nowadays are coming out with like 160000 The reason my balance was that low was because I had that scholarship. And it was kind of a weird thing because it was cheaper for me to go like out of state and live on my own than it was for me to stay back at home going to law school and living at home simply because of that scholarship. So that wouldn't really help me... Uh, out. And when I ended up paying off my student loans, I added all up. So I ended up paying about 100000 after all the interest and everything accumulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's about what the damage was for law school for me. Got it. And what was your kind of plan of attack from that starting that position? Were you, were you kind of like passive about paying them off at first or did you jump right into it and get going, paying them down? Yeah. So I got uh, pretty aggressive right off the bat. One of the things is, you know, I started off at like a big law firm and the environment was like, Probably, I, I kind of knew that wasn't for me. So I kind of was like, okay, I need to make sure that I am not stuck here and that I can like do something else if I have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my basic plan was like, well, I've been spending the last, you know, seven years of my life living like with basically no money. So it's not going to be that hard for me to just like do that still. So, you know, like I was just thinking like, well, so how many Natty Lights do I need to live this month? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of so we, while we, a lot of we, people, we all drink better beer now, right? We all do. Now we're all craft all right, beer. All right, good. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but that's kind of the way I approached it was, you know, I don't need to inflate my lifestyle. You know, I'm 26 years old. No one expects a 26-year-old to be like making bank and living in some luxury apartment anyway. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to keep living in this regular apartment, taking the bus to to work, you know, not or biking to work, not uh, buying a car, not really like upgrading my clothes. It was just like, you know, I had just kind of normal stuff. Yes. 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 You know, and I didn't do this. I went the opposite route and, oh, I've got money. Now I can move out of my parents' house into my first apartment. But, you know, that didn't last very long because I'm so cheap. I'm like, I can't just throw away money on rent. I have to buy something which led me down a whole different path. But so many people, they get that that first paycheck and they're like, now I can spend it. I need a car. I deserve this. I've worked hard for it. And you know, what were your friends doing? Did you have a lot of attorney friends as well? Yeah. 
And so that's the thing. It's it's harder, especially in a law firm, because you're around all like everyone in the law firm is making the same as you. So, you know, you kind of can see what all your friends are doing and all of them would do the same thing because they're all living in like fancy apartments, you know, buying houses after a while and just like living much more lavishly than I was living. So my normal friends, like my friends who weren't, you know, big shot lawyers were living like regular lives, but like day in and day out, I was like surrounded by these people who are like making, you know, pretty good money and spending a lot of it to like show that lifestyle. And so it was kind of like, who am I going to compare myself to? Right. Because am I, or who am I going to like put as my baseline? Because the way I saw it was like, if I live like a normal 26 year old and not like a big shot lawyer, 26 year old, then, you know, I can have so much more and kind of give myself more options later down the line. How many hours a week are were your peers at the law firm putting in on an average week? Yeah, it's uh, you know, because of it, it's it's like a 60 plus hour week type thing, which is really tough. And it and it's not always like 60 hours of just straight working. It's like sometimes you're just waiting around, but you know, because you are kind of getting the thing about a law firm is like every partner is your boss. And so you're kind of just like there and it's like if you're there, you know, at nine o'clock and then it's like you're getting ready to leave at five, and then some random partner comes up and says they want you to do something at five. And now you got to do that, and then you're leaving at like nine, ten o'clock, and you basically spent the whole day, didn't really do a ton, and then now you had like all this work at night, and so your day was really long, even if it didn't feel like you did a ton of work that day. So, but, but like people are in the office on average 60, 60 ish hours a week, right? Yeah, and, I would say so. And how long are they, are they maintaining that for? Like, how long do they, like, how many years? So a lot of people kind of do it for like three to five years and they start like realizing, well, you know, this isn't going to work. And you kind of see them start jumping around to different types of jobs. And then, you know, the people who are really hardcore about it, who like are just built for that kind of thing, they stay for, you know, they go all the way to to make it to the top. So it sounds like you were in the other group you mentioned earlier. Well, how long did it take you to realize that you you didn't want to climb the ladder to the top or to make that a career move? Yeah. So I knew pretty much right away that this was not going to be the right fit for me just because of how I wanted to live my life. And so the only thing that was really holding me back though, of course, was that I had these student loans and I wanted to get rid of them really fast. And so I needed to stay in that. So I ended up staying in that job for three years before making a switch to a to like a government job that I thought would be easier and with a better work-life balance. And that one was not. <laughs> it was just as much work actually, except for a big pay cut. So that didn't <laughs> that did that wasn't a great <laughs> Well, okay. So look at this timeline. So two, three, you stay there three years and you pay off your entire student loan balance, I take it, right? And then you jump you jump ship to the government job, right? So you're That's correct. 29 at this point in the government job. How long does that last? And let's pick up the story from there. Yeah, yeah. So I took that government job. I was there for a year before I made another switch to a nonprofit job. During that government job, it had really good benefits, but the hours were like... So one thing is, is a uh, it was a $50,000 pay cut from what I was making before which is like a pretty big amount to drop in one year. (laughs) And so, you know, it's kind of funny. Lawyers have a weird thing where sometimes they can, most jobs, most career paths, you kind of have a steady up, you know, increase in income. And with lawyers, it can actually go backwards where if you don't stay in the big law firm, you can actually flatten out or drop. So another reason why it's really important to kind of avoid the whole lifestyle creep with uh, lawyer type jobs. 
but yeah, so I got to this government job and the hours were just pretty much similar to what the, you know, what the big law job was. It, it was like a large state agency, you know, so essentially it's just a big state law firm essentially. And, but they just had so much work to do and it was just a lot of late nights also. Well, that sounds terrible. right so that's the one thing about the whole grass is greener it sometimes isn't which is why i ended up staying there just a year before i made another switch into a nonprofit that i thought would be uh, a better work-life balance for me and so the nonprofit was like kind of a law adjacent field it was for my state bar association and uh that one was fine I, i was there for about a year and a half or almost two years but it just like wasn't particularly that interesting to me. And meanwhile, I had all these like little, I did like doing my blog on the side. I'd been doing all these little side hustle things. I was having a lot more fun doing. And I was kind of thinking to myself, well, why don't I just do this instead and see where that can take me? I'm still young. I can always go back and get something else or switch over to something else if I need to. And so that's kind of my career progression. So what was your salary at the nonprofit compared to the government job? Yeah. Uh, do you want like, I'm cool sharing specific numbers if you want. Sure. Uh, yeah. So my, so my highest salary at the big law firm was 125,000 and my salary at the nonprofit was 57,000. So oh, well, a that's, pretty big reverse. That's a little <laughs> and, bit different. <laughs> right. But you know, the really interesting thing was even though I took such a big pay cut during those stretches, because I'd been like so used to living on less, I was still saving money like with no problem. Like I always had a huge surplus. My like, you know, I had never had any problem, it seemed, just because I hadn't really inflated my lifestyle very much during that like five, six years of working. And so like it didn't really impact me to drop down. Like, yeah, I could have saved more, obviously, if I had like kept working the big big law firm jobs or, but it just like, wasn't, it wasn't make me happy to do that. And you only have one life. Why live it stressed out and miserable when you can live it happy and doing what you want? Sort of. I mean, it doesn't sound like law was really your, your dream job. Did you dream of being a lawyer as a kid or did it just kind of fall into place? No, law is one of these things. And I I kind of talked about this with people where law is kind of one of those jobs where you can kind of default into when you have no idea what you're doing. So <laughs> um, because unlike, you know, unlike the medical school, like med school or dental school or any of those type of professions, law school doesn't have any prerequisites other than that you can just take a test, like a multiple choice fill in the blank or bubble test. And so as a result, a lot of people, you know, you see people, they graduate from college and they're kind of like, well, what am I going to do? And so if they don't really know, they just go, well, lawyer. That's like a job that you know. And it's like, it's a very clear job with like very obvious steps to take to get to certain types of jobs. So like, you know, like even now, if you gave me your GPA and your LSAT, I can tell you exactly what law school you can get into. And it's just like, it's like literally, you know, just from the numbers and there's nothing else you need. doesn't matter what you majored in. Whereas like, you know, med school, you need OCHEM and all that stuff. So it makes it a little, there's more barriers to get in. And so for me, I graduated college in 2009, which was like in the recession. And I had no like choice. I had like no job, nothing to do. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go to law school. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting just like this dynamic where a lot of people who go down your career track, they will spend them themselves into a lifestyle that eats up basically all of their income, right? That's like what you do, right? And then you lock yourself into this perpetuating cycle of this career where you're progressing here. And then whenever you want to exit, you have to make an incredibly painful cutback on your lifestyle, which most people can't handle, which, and you just successfully bypassed all of that with the career choices that you've made, right? Which I think is fantastic. And I, and I've seen many people's lives, not many people in my life, I have seen the devastation left by a forced reduction in lifestyle. This is, you know, when people go from $250,000 a year of spending and they're forced down to $80,000 a year of spending, it's this existential um, problem. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? If you've already won the game, why don't you just spend reasonably, live like a normal person and generate a massive surplus and then do what you want to do, which is the, the, the rules of the game that you figured out right away and have reaped the benefits of basically your whole career after you knocked out, got back to zero and paid off your debt. But Scott, then he can't show everybody how successful he is by driving his BMW and his Mercedes and taking these lavish trips that he can tell everybody about. Yeah, he gets to come um, on the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. <laughs> yeah. And that's better. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's better than a Ferrari. Come on. <laughs> okay. So I know you're married. When did you meet your wife? At what point in this career or schooling? Did you meet in school? I did. Yep. So I was in law school and she was in dental school when we met. Oh, dental school. So you have now paid off all of your student loans, but dental school I have heard is a little pricey. It is. It's crazy pricey, like ridiculous, even when you're in state. And actually, because my wife actually had to go out of state because her state didn't have a dental school. So it made it even more pricey, but even the in-state rates are still really expensive these days too. Did you guys merge finances or how do you kind of hand, handle money in your relationship with, with the different dynamics of debt there? We heard about your story and it sounded like that was kind of an individualistic approach, but let, let us know. Yeah. So when I had my student loans, so we got married in 2017 and we met when we were in school. So this, we met in 2012. Um, mm -hmm. So we've been dating for a while and you know we had our own separate finances. She had her things, I had mine. And her schooling was a lot longer because she also did a residency. So she actually didn't even start her first real job until uh, last year. <laughs> so it's, it's been, she's been on school for a long time. For me, my whole thing with student loans was like, it was my student loans. We weren't married yet. So it was like my own thing. And so my goal was like, we got engaged like during that stretch, but I was like, I'm going to pay off these student loans before like we're even married. So like, I'm like fresh and like out of it. And so that's what I did with her. Now we have like, it, we've combined our finances now. And so for her right now, we are working on it. We're actually kind of doing a little different compared to how I did it. When I paid off my student loans, I was kind of just dumping money into it as I went. This time, I kind of... Um, because of hers, we kind of like... I like having that like big surplus. So instead of like throwing it down every time and like the money's now gone, we've actually just been kind of setting it aside. So like just in case something happens, we've got the cash that we can like use like just in case not to like buy like a, a car or something but just in case there's like something that happens that we need it that we need a little flexibility it's kind of nice to have that little surplus cash and then once it's enough we can just kind of get rid of her student loans 
So what, what is your kind of like, is your position largely basically cash then, and then the debt, and you're just kind of slowly paying that down and swelling your, your cash reserve. Do you invest at all as well? Yeah. So I've got my investments pretty strong and most of my money is actually invested. Like the money that I had made, like when I was working after I paid off my student loans, I was just saving money and putting it into investments for my wife. She because she started her career so late, she's actually just started like investing because she had no money before. And now she like started doing it now that she has like a significant income. And so for her, like her side of the balance sheet was de- is definitely very cash heavy. And so that's kind of where we are. So right now we're pretty cash heavy, but it's not that way because we're scared to invest because we are still like hitting the investments hard. We're just, uh, we're just kind of keeping it a cash position right now until the student loans are gone. Got it. Okay. Do you have an estimated time of her debt payoff? Yeah, we think we can pay her debt off by next year, which is kind of the goal. Oh, we are doing it. Yeah. There's a couple of reasons for that. So she had a lot of student loans and these are things that are like, that are different than most people. So she had $300,000 of uh, dental school loans Crazy. <laughs> I know. Oh, and you're paying <laughs> but, that off in one year? No. What's happening is because um, her father passed away like before I met her. And her father had a lot of life insurance, which she had been just holding on to. And then a few years back, she put about 200000 of that into the student loans, which brought it down to 100000 And mm-hmm. so that's what's happening now. So now we only have 100000 of her student loans which is very low, but she started with 300,000. So it's kind of like a unique situation, kind of wasn't, you know, it's not like the best one, but that's yeah, kind no. of what happened. That's kind of what happened for her. Got it. I wouldn't say $100,000 in student loans is low. For, for a dentist, it's really <laughs> for a, low. For a dentist, yes. <laughs> I mean, they get up to like four or $500,000, right? Yeah, I have a lot of dental school friends. Uh, one of them is four hundred thousand dollars in student loans. I have another who's five hundred, over five hundred thousand in student loans. I've got another person who's been doing residency. I wouldn't be surprised if his student loans are <laughs> over five hundred, also. So it's really wow. it's like a huge mortgage. Yeah, you know, it's all it's all relative to your income, right? And you know, a dentist is going to make a very strong income, which is why, which is one of the reasons why it's an attractive profession, right? And so that hundred thousand dollars in debt is just not that it's half a year maybe of, of, of salary for, I don't know how on average, how much a dentist makes, but, but it's probably in that ballpark, maybe less. Right. Well, dentists are a little bit different. So they do make a lot if they, or they can make a lot if they own their own practice, but not so much if they are just working for someone. So that's one thing my wife did is she bought a practice right after she was done with her residency and so that's really helped her out a lot. I mean, it's a lot more work, obviously, but it's like her business, which is how you can make a lot more as a dentist compared to just working as associate for someone. Okay. So you are no longer employed. I believe we called you an unemployed bum at the beginning of the show. <laughs> you still generate income, right? Correct. Okay. So how are you doing this? You were a lawyer. Now you're not a lawyer anymore. What makes you money? Yeah. So I have a couple of things. I have my blog, which I was working on for since 2016. And so that's like what I consider my primary profession now. I've just been building that up on the side. That was like a thing I was doing at nights and on weekends to like get it going. And then I do a lot of stuff to like in the sharing economy and gig economy, 
which is stuff I was doing even when I was a lawyer. So you, I just, I can just kind of go through the list of what I did, uh, what all the stuff I do. Yes, I already know a lot of this list, and I love that you do this. So please share all the things that you generate income with, and if you could give us like a little bit of an idea what that pays. Yeah, sure. So you know, so uh, I rent out a room in my house on Airbnb, and I sometimes rent out my whole house on Airbnb when I go on trips and stuff. So that one I usually make between make about a thousand dollars a month from the Airbnb, which is uh, and this is great because it's just like a room in my house that would otherwise be empty. And then I do uh, I dog sit using an app called Rover. That's like a dog boarding website. It's like an Air, think of it as an Airbnb for dogs. That one I usually make about three grand a year doing about somewhere around the neighborhood, $3,000 a year doing that. And the thing that makes Rover so good for me is I already own a dog. So (laughs) it's not like any extra work for me because I already have to walk my dog and feed my dog and do all that other stuff. So it kind of just like integrates in my life perfectly. And I've been doing that for like five years now. So I have like this base of repeat dogs. I keep watching. They're like so easy, so cute. And I probably watch them for free, honestly, but that, that could get like a bonus. Do these dogs come stay with you or do you have to go to these other residences? No, they stay at my house. So basically, I just have a second dog in my house a lot of the time. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's, it's like awesome. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and then I also do um, food deliveries using my bike for apps like uh, Postmates, DoorDash, Uber Eats and the Grubhub. And this is one that I, I think is super underrated if you do it with a bike specifically and not with a car. Because you can like, I bike around the city and I'm getting paid basically to essentially do what I would already do anyway. Because I'm like a heavy biker. I like, I like bike like for exercise and for fun all the time. And the fact that like I'm getting to do this little like treasure hunt is like great. <laughs> and the great thing too is the way I usually did it is I would uh, kind of like combine it with, and I, I mean, the way I usually do it, I like combine it with like my commutes. So like if I'm coming home from like downtown, I will like grab some deliveries that are going back towards my house, which I'm already biking to anyway. So it's like I'm getting paid to go home, you know, even if it's like a little bit of a meandering route. But that's uh, something that I think is super underrated to essentially get paid to exercise. So you can set that up in the app. You can set it up so that, hey, I want to go generally from this direction to this direction. Give me a delivery that meets that criteria. So no, you can't do it that way, but you can kind of, you just kind of wait around because you can reject any order that comes in. And so if you're like sitting in your office, you're getting ready to go, you just turn on the app and just kind of wait until, you know, you turn all the apps and just kind of wait till the deliveries that you want are going in the direction you want to go. And then the I best see. thing is if you can double up and like have deliveries, this is how you really make money on it. If you double up and have deliveries from multiple apps at the same time, going mm-hmm. in the same general direction, because then you're like doing, you know, you're multitasking essentially. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. That's a great tip. And what does that pay? So that one I typically make... I. Because I only do it during like prime times, like essentially lunch and dinner, I'm always making about twenty to twenty-five dollars an hour. So I'll usually do like an hour of it and make like twenty-five bucks. So what is that? I mean, it's usually somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred or five hundred bucks a month, just like doing that, you know, in my spare time. <laughs> when I'm 
working out. I'm paying to work out. I'm not getting paid to work out. Right. <laughs> right. And like, this is great. Like I discovered these apps, these delivery apps from my brother. Cause he, he lives in DC and he like back in like 2014, he had just like, he was like, yo, you gotta like try out this app. And he like was doing these deliveries on like his skateboard and stuff. And was like, <laughs> like, this is so fun. And you know, he's like, owns a business and like he still does deliveries just because he thinks it's fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so we've got we've got the dog sitting, we've got the um, delivery, yep. got Airbnb, the Airbnb, blog, and the Airbnb. What else? Do you have do you have other sources besides that? I've got a whole lot of other sources. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> this is awesome. So uh, another thing I st- I started doing is um, a few years back was is an app called Wag. It's like a on demand dog walking uh, app. So so think of it like an Uber for dogs when uh, people need. To get their dog walked during the day, they'll like put the thing in the app, and then you can just pick up like walks if they're near you. And so that one was great because I would do that back when I had like my nine to five day job. There were all these apartment buildings all around my office, and so I could just like walk outside and like grab a dog walk during lunch, which is when most people want their dogs walked anyway. And so each time I walk a dog, it'd be like a half hour. I make like sixteen dollars, and. So basically, instead of like sitting at my desk eating like a sandwich, you know, and just like wasting time on like the internet, I would just go for like a 30 minute walk, like around and like get a little exercise, get a little fresh air and like walk a dog and get paid while I was doing it. So that one was great. And so, you know, that one you can make like, you know, I would make like under 200 bucks a month doing that. Great. All of these little side jobs add up to a full time income but they don't sound like they take a lot of time out of your day. Like you can, you can go and walk a dog at lunch. Like you said, you're not sitting at your desk. Connor Center, if you're listening to this, there's another way to make a little bit of extra cash because we're going to have all of these apartment buildings right by our office. So there you go, Connor. I know he listens to the show. He works at our company. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, it really, it's exactly because like, it only takes up a lot of time if you're like really going out of your way to do it. But if you're like kind of incorporating it into the stuff you're already doing, then it really doesn't feel like you're like adding hours to your day, you know? So it's like, if you're walking a dog during your lunch break, does that count as you working a half hour? Or like, was that like time that would have been spent doing nothing anyway, right? Um, Same with like my commute home. It's like, if I'm doing delivery on my way home, is that like that work? Or is that like, I'm just getting paid to go home? Oh, awesome. Yeah. So let's keep this going. I can keep going. Yeah. So another one, this is, uh, this started in 2018 was uh, charging up bird and lime scooters. If you're in any big city, you've probably seen these scooters around. And uh, basically what you do is you just, you sign up to be a charger, like a scooter charger, and you take them back in your house and like just plug them in and then you bring them back out in the morning. You have to drop them off in certain spots. But if you live in like you know, a dense area, which a lot of like, especially young, like millennials do, you know, like new college grads and that kind of thing. You can really, it's so easy because like, you know, I live like near a large university. So there's like a ton of scooters. And so every night I'll just grab six scooters. It'll take me like 15 minutes max. I just literally walk out the door and just grab six scooters. I do this on foot. So takes a little skill for me. Like I've learned how to do it. I, I can basically stack all the scooters up on top of each other and ride like a big stack home. <laughs> Which I got to like show a video to understand how it looks like, but it's like, 
it's a pro move. <laughs> and so every night, each scooter here in Minneapolis pay $5 a scooter. And so it's like every night I make $30 just taking these scooters home, you know, just like walking outside my door. And then the drop-off spots, because again, I'm in like a dense neighborhood, all the drop-off spots are right around my house too. So like a block away, I'll just like bring them back out in the morning. And as a kind of like a bonus when you're like using these, when you uh, like are charging these scooters, you can basically ride them around free. (laughs) Um, Oh. Right. And so sometimes, you know, if I'm like, you know, a little lazy, I'll use the scooters to do deliveries. (laughs) 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 You always get to laugh when I bring it, like I'm delivering food and I'm like on like a lime scooter. They'll be like, what's this? (laughs) Are you paying for that? I'm like, oh no, this is like a little little strategy I use. (laughs) So what does that do to your electricity bill? Yeah, that's a question people always ask. So these scooters, the batteries in these scooters are like a battery in like a laptop. They don't take up a lot of electricity. People have have done the math on them and it's like two to five cents to charge it from zero to 100%. And so, which, right, most people like don't realize that like, oh, right. Because they're like, this like a micro mobility thing. The batteries don't have to be that big to move the vehicle. And so the battery is not like a huge, like giant battery. It's just like taking a ton of electricity. It's essentially like charging up a laptop, basically. I would get extra electrical service in my house and bring a boatload of these things home (laughs) and charge them up. I mean, how long does it take to charge? Uh, It takes like four to five hours to charge them from zero to a hundred. So you pretty much just uh, put them there overnight. And then in the morning, you just wake up and drop them off. Oh, I'd be doing this all day long. Do you get a little notification? This one needs to be charged. So you don't get notifications. You have to just kind of look in the app to see what's available. So I'm like always just looking in the app because I just like to grab the scooters. But I mean, for me also, I just like riding these scooters around because sometimes I'll just charge them and then not put them back out. I just like hang on to it and just ride it around. (laughs) For these scooters, do you average six per night? Yeah, I do six per night is my goal. And I've had, at least during the summer, I had no problem doing it. Here in Minneapolis, they take them out during the winter. So they're gone now. But yeah, so in like, I had one month where I made over a thousand bucks charging up these scooters. And then the rest of the summer, I was at $800 or more every month, literally just walking out the street, picking up scooters. And like, it's funny because I had some people here and they like, saw how I did it. And they're like, oh man, I'm going to do that too. So like, I have like friends now who are also doing it because they like live in like downtown areas and they just like, are like, yeah, these scooters are everywhere. This is also not a huge time commitment, right? No, you no. grab the scooters, you plug them in and then you walk away and that's 30 bucks. That's dinner. Your utilities for the month, every single night. There's, I mean, right. you could almost pay rent just by doing that. You could almost, yeah. And the main thing is the caveat is this is very location dependent. Because that like, is true. you live somewhere that doesn't have a lot of scooters, like you live in a farther out from the city center, I don't think it would be worth it. Because then you'd have to like drive probably and you'd be like wasting your time going back and forth. But if you are in like these neighborhoods that like all the young millennials are living, that is where you can do it because there are just so many of them around. Have we exhausted the list or, or how, how much longer does this go on? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I can just jump through some quicker keep, ones. Keep too. going, yeah. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, so um, another thing I sometimes do is, and this is the only one that my wife does with me because she just loves doing this, is um, 
like flipping stuff. So like if we find like furniture in the street, we'll sell that on like a Craigslist or Facebook marketplace. We sometimes go to like Goodwill and we'll just like find stuff and uh, that we think is worth more than it's selling for and flip it. Another place is there's a, there's a place called Goodwill Outlet. It's like wild there. You you go there and you buy stuff by the pound and there's always like, you're like, you literally just like dig through bins looking for things and it's paid for by pound, but like you find some sweet stuff. Like I once found like a Burton, like snow, snowboard bag. Like I didn't know what that was, but my wife knew what it was. And then that thing cost me, since it's by the pound, that thing must've cost me a dollar to buy. And I sold it for $50. Yes. <laughs> I live, we live in Colorado, Scott and I live in Colorado. So there's mountains right there. There's a lot of snowboard gear that gets donated or ski gear too. I'm not uh, discriminatory, but I do snowboard. So I go there first. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that gets like left at the resorts and you go to the thrift stores up in the mountains. And I got a Columbia ski jacket for like $15 and it fits perfect. I got my sister a snowboard, snowboard boots and snowboard bag because she lives in the Midwest for $15 each. So for $45, she's set to go. She can go snowboarding in the Midwest, which doesn't have great places, or she can come out here and she's got a, it's a brand name board. I think it's a Burton or a ride or something. They're just so cheap and people will pay a lot more. I used to sell snowboards online on eBay. They're really expensive to ship. Oh yeah. That's the nice thing about that bag. I like could like fold it up and stick in a box. So it's yeah. Easy. Do you, do you sell anything on eBay? Yeah. Yeah. So I sell on eBay also. So most of the stuff I find uh, like, like clothes stuff, I sell it on eBay. That's awesome. Is there any tips for things that like you thought would sell, but wouldn't sell or things that sell really well? Yeah. So it seems like if, if you're doing, if you're going to do any of this like reselling things, you kind of need to like pick your lane that you're good at. So for me, like Whenever I see anything that's sports related, I instantly grab it because like sports stuff tends to sell, I find sells pretty well. And it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, if you're like looking for a college, especially college sports stuff specifically, because, you know, if you're like, you need like a college hoodie or something, you're just going to like, that's just something that people are going to buy, like no matter what I find. And so that's kind of what I aim for. So like, like I recently found a University of Wisconsin, like Columbia jacket. I've got that currently listed up for $40 and we'll see. I'll probably get like 35 or 40 bucks for it. I paid a dollar for that thing at the Goodwill outlet. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I just snatched it out of there. And then someone else there grabbed the Minnesota jacket. So they got a hold of that before I could get it. <laughs> oh, and people are so... I don't want to say this and sound negative. I don't mean negative, but they're so rabidly fanatic about the college that they went to. Hey, Scott, where'd you go to college? I went to Vanderbilt University. Oh, yeah, I knew the answer to that. I don't know that how many times you've said that on the show, but yeah. uh, in, in real life, that comes out frequently. And I'm not like talking smack about Scott. He's proud of where he goes. I guess rapidly fanatic isn't the right word. Go doors. They're proud. Go doors. <laughs> you're the... Commodores. Oh, I'm like, you're the yeah. doors? <laughs> My high school? Yeah, the Vanderbilt Commodores. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's a Commodore? Uh, so, uh, it's like uh, someone who commands a fleet of ships. Oh, okay. Uh, in my high school, we were the tugboats. Yeah. The porters. Now, Cornelius Vanderbilt had a kind of like canal system transportation network that he 
oversaw and facilitated. I'm probably butchering that and someone will beat me up uh, who listens to the show and knows, knows that story a little better than me. But yeah, so we're the, the Vanderbilt Commodores. Yes. So Vanderbilt Commodores. I don't have, I have nothing that says Commodore on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kevin, if you of- find anything from Vanderbilt... Right. Cause you know, if he has to go to, if he wants to go to like a football game or something or a basketball game, he's going to need like a hoodie or a sweater or something. Right. I've got plenty of that stuff to your point. Yeah. And I, yeah. <laughs> this show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb. And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney.
Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Okay, so what else are you finding? Yeah, I, I like selling like coats and stuff too. I always find that those are like pretty light and they sell for a lot more than they cost. Oh, uh, that's a good plan. Yeah, you know, like especially like if you find like a like a down coat, like you know, like that Columbia coat, for example, right? Like if you can find one like that, it's like you can sell that usually for thirty bucks, and if you can buy it for less, you know, for way less than that, then it's and it's very easy to ship it out. You just kind of stuff it into a uh, like a one of those, you know, or you just save like whenever you order something, you just save the box for it and you just stuff it into those. So those are kind of what I focus on, and it's just. This is one of those things that does take work to go to it, but it's just funny because like my wife is like, you know, she's like a dentist making like very good money and she still goes to the Goodwill house. And she'll like be like, hey, do you want to go there today? I'll be like, eh, not really. But she's like, come on, let's go. <laughs> he likes digging around looking for treasures to see if she finds anything good. <laughs> okay, that was going to be my other point. I had two points to make about this. First of all, all of these side hustles are doable by anybody. Not Maybe not the Lime scooter. I live in a suburb. We don't have any Lime scooters or any other scooters. So I can't do that one, but I can rent a room in my house. I can go to the good... I love going to the Goodwill. I could be a hoarder and that's not a good thing. But if I can go there and buy things and then sell them, I'm making money. I still get the experience of going to the Goodwill and then I don't have to have all this stuff in my house. But I have never found anything that, that sells well for me. So I just gave it up. Um, but I think I just picked dumb things to try and sell too. Right. And that's the, it takes, it takes some time before you like can figure out like, okay, what is it? But the great thing is like, you know, if you pick stuff and it's not good, like, or it doesn't sell, it's like, well, you won't be out like a ton, right? You know, you don't have to like spend tons of money buying stuff. Exactly. Oh, I just paid it for a dollar so I can donate it. Right. But then the other point is you're a lawyer. Your wife is a dentist. Why would you waste your time doing this when you could be making more money on teeth and the law. Right. <laughs> you know, and for me, like a lot of the reason I did, I like started doing all these, like I started almost all these side hustles while I was working at like my big, at the big law firm. And for me, a lot of it was just like, this was kind of like a stress relief for me. It was like a way for me to kind of like manage how I was feeling because I could like go and like do a bunch of deliveries on my bike after work and like, you know, not even like think about work and like begin doing something active. And it was like something totally 100% different than what I was doing for the last 10 hours, which was, you know, sitting in front of a desk, typing something or searching for something. And so that is why I like first started doing this stuff. And like, I just found them fun. So it's like the fact that like, yeah, it's like definitely beneath me. And yeah, I could like go and do something else. Probably like I could probably like try to do some other law related thing, 
but do I want to after I'm already spending 10 hours, like kind of not enjoying what I was doing? Do I really want to go do something more of the same thing that I'm doing that I'm not having fun doing? So that's kind of like how I end up doing this stuff. So what does a day in the life look like? Yeah. So right now the day in life is like, I wake up in the morning, I like take care of my dog, I go for a little walk. And then I try to work on my uh, website and stuff during the morning. I have a co-working space downtown that I go to to kind of like keep myself a good schedule. So I'm not like just like sitting at home all the time. And then during lunch, when the lunch rush hour comes, I usually like to hop on a bike and start doing deliveries around the lunch, like for the lunch crowd downtown, which is always super easy because they're like always really close. It'll be like, you know, the five guys down the street, like up, you know, to like the building that's like across the street. <laughs> so I like to do that. And then, you know, I'll work in the afternoon and then uh, maybe pick up some like dog walks or something again, because there's so many around me. And then um, in the evening, I'll usually, this is what I was doing for a while. I would grab scooters and try to scoot them home. Like, so I'd grab like two or three scooters and ride them back towards my house. So it was like, I was getting a free scooter ride home <laughs> and making money on along the way. And then I also, sometimes depending on the day, I'll do deliveries on my way home as well. Got it. So you're making $150 a day without having a boss telling you what to do, without feeling stressed. You get to be paid while you exercise. You get to ride a fun scooter. Those scooters are super fun. <laughs> they're, they're so fun. <laughs> and I asked the question about why don't you do something, you know, that pays more just because I can hear somebody listening to this saying, well, why doesn't he just go back to work? Well, cause that's work. That's somebody telling you what to do. That's the partner coming to your desk at five o'clock as you're packing everything up. Oh, Hey, you got four extra hours. Uh, no, I didn't. Well, now you do. Right. And that that's kind of how I started thinking about it. It's like, what can I do that is like, makes me happier, you know? And, but, but, you know, like, since I don't need a lot to live, it's like, I, I have a lot more choices now, you know, because, you know, if my baseline was like, I need a hundred grand every year to live, that means I only have a few types of jobs I can do. Whereas if I only need, you know, half of that or less, I have like the whole spectrum of jobs that I can do. Well, let's break this down real quick. You just you just listed a set of activities where you make about $150 a day through your work, right? Specifically, which is the deliveries, the ride share, the dog walking, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but you're also building an asset, which is your blog, right? Correct. And you passively make money through your Airbnb, through your residence there as well, right? And this is all made possible by this very low cost lifestyle and the fact that you have no personal debt, you know, well, outside of your wife's debt. Cor correct. Yeah. And you know, this is kind of like what I did. Cause like I had like the regular day job and then I had kind of like a scalable business that I had started up and then the side hustles. And so it's kind of nice because now I got rid of the regular job. And so now I have my scalable like business and then my side hustles basically give me like a floor, you know, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So it's like, I know whatever my business does, at least I can make it a little bit at least. Like I'm not going to be rich obviously, but at least I'll be like, okay, just doing the other stuff. And so it's like, gives me a little comfort, I guess. And you know, it's kind of like, I think of it sort of like, even when I was working, I kind of thought of my side hustle is kind of like this little kind of side hustle emergency fund. So like if something happened, I knew like, well, I'm not going to be digging into all my savings because I can make some money on the side doing these other stuff just more often. Now, what law school did you go to? 
Uh, I went to University of Minnesota. Okay, great. Other law school grads from Minnesota who start off at a big firm, right? If they're still there, they're probably making in the ballpark of one hundred seventy-five to two hundred thousand dollars a year. I don't know, right? Yeah, I, I don't know what they're making now, like my year, but yeah, they probably are. Probably yeah, in that ballpark now. Yeah, and they they have one option, which is to continue basically doing that, or they can take a what seems like a crazy reduction in hours, but moves them from like seventy to fifty-five hours a week at another job for a hefty pay cut, right? Those are their only two options. I that's think, the, that's their two options they think that they have. That's right, yeah. And <laughs> the way you've constructed is you broke it down. You're like, no, none of this stuff that anybody can do is beneath me, which we, to use your phrasing there. And I'm gonna, exactly, I'm gonna set this floor. I'm gonna get rid of my debt. I'm gonna manage my life in this way. And I have a broad number of options. And when it's all said and done, you're probably gonna have a happier day-to-day and be more fulfilled with what you're doing. And you might end up better off financially downstream anyways, from an income perspective, depending on how some of these, these side hustles and businesses end up growing downstream. Like for example, your blog, or if you ever, you know, or, or whatever it is you invested in grow, right? I mean, it's just a kind of a crazy outcome and, and crazy situation if you, when you break it all down like that, where why would you lock yourself into that pattern from a spending standpoint? and trap yourself in that mental cage that you have to imagine so many of these other lawyers and industry professionals similar to that are locking themselves into. Yeah. And, you know, it's just to like kind of talk about that, you know, there's a, there's a thing where with like a lot, especially with a lot of these like professional professions where you kind of start, where you kind of, since you identify with it so much, you kind of think that is the only thing you can do. So, you know, if you look at my own work history, like I jumped jobs a lot, but I kept being unhappy and then jumping into another legal job, thinking like, well, that's all I can do because like I went to law school. I am a lawyer, right? And you know, you see, I still call myself a lawyer, even though I don't like practice because I identify with that so much because it was like a big part of my life. And it's like there's a lot of lawyers who are like unhappy and like really want to do something else, but they aren't able to like quite get themselves in that mental position of like, maybe I can do something that isn't law, you know? Like maybe there's like a huge world of stuff out there and <laughs> I could try something else. Because it's hard. It's hard to do that, right? You know, if you've been doing this thing, it's like not easy to think, well, what else can I do? That's right. And I don't think we've talked about the status part of it before. Being a lawyer is very impressive and being a doctor is very impressive. And being a guy who plug scooters into his wall at night, <laughs> I think is very impressive, but it's impressive in a different way. So how do you, how do you get over that? Yeah, that is a thing I have battled with a lot because, you know, especially like, even for me, like when I was changing jobs and stuff, I would keep kind of taking like sort of jobs that would be seen as worse, you know? And it's like, I'd be like around all my, these other lawyers who are talking about like very prestigious things, you know, the big cases they're working on, the big law firm they work at. And it's like something that honestly, I don't think you ever really get over that. You just have to like be comfortable. And like, I still, that's still a thing I wor- I like have to work on too, because, you know, a lot of people ask me like, they'll be like, what do you do? Right. That's what they ask. And my natural instinct is just like, I'm a lawyer. So that they like, no, like I am like someone. Right. And like, if I'm like, oh, I'm a, blogger. And it's like, oh, so this guy's a bum, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so it's something that I honestly haven't gotten over yet. And I'm like still working through that myself. Just like, it takes a lot of work to be comfortable with what you're doing and who you are and like what 
makes you happy and what like moves you. Well, one of my favorite quotes is from Coco Chanel, the fashion designer. She said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all. <laughs> She's super sassy. And, you know, and I, I try to tell that to my daughters who are in uh, middle school and in the throes of all the drama that comes with the teenage hormones and all of that. But, you know, it doesn't matter in the long run. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It only matters that you are proud of yourself. And you, I just did math on the calculator because I wanted to double check my numbers, but $150 a day times 30 days is $4,500. If you're used to living on very low, $4,500 is, you know, livable, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like totally fine. I don't feel like I'm like struggling or anything. It's like, Totally fine. That's your floor. That's before Airbnb and before your blog income, right? Right. That that's the interesting thing is that since I quit my job, like with the combined everything, it's more than I was making, like than my day job income. And it was like kind of funny because when I wanted to, or it was like when I wanted to make the leap to like doing my own thing, it was like such a scary thing, right? You know, because like I have like this steady income and like I wanted to keep it, but it's like I can like do that myself. And it's kind of like when, since I was making less also than like what I was making as a big shot, like a big time, big law lawyer, it was like easier for me because I had lowered my, like what I thought I needed to make. So it's like, when I quit my job, I was like, I just need to make $57,000 this year and I will be exactly the same position as I was before. So that was a lot easier for me to do than like if I needed to make $150,000. Yes, <laughs> that would be very difficult with, with right. your, your current set of uh, <laughs> tasks. But but within a couple of years, some of these things grow. You know, you never know. Right, right. And I I want to make a couple more. I keep making all these points. I want to just reiterate: this is before your wife's dental income, which is not insignificant. I think that we should you know mention that again, just because the mad scientist is married to an optometrist and. He was in the some article on, online and somebody's like, well, yeah, but his wife's an optometrist. His wife's a doctor. Yeah, she is. But that doesn't negate the fact that he can support them on his side hustle business and on his, you know, all of his, uh, you know, investments and everything. Just because she's a doctor doesn't make him any less financially independent. Just because you're married to a dentist doesn't make you any less financially independent. And now you're working all of these little side hustles that you could stop working if it suddenly decided to not make you happy anymore, or if it suddenly didn't make you happy anymore. You know, you all of a sudden now it costs you five dollars to hook up Lime scooters. Probably not going to do that anymore. But you seem like a happy guy. I have met attorneys who are extremely stressed out because their whole life revolves around you know being stern and you know doing all the the lawyery things. They don't seem happy. Right. You seem real happy. Yeah, that is definitely true. And that's like what a lot of people have told me since they like have seen me like post my legal career that I am just much more happy. And it's because like, even though I'm not making like the big, big bucks like before, it's like, that's not as important to me as like having control, more control of like my life and like feeling like I am in charge of it and not like someone else, you know? So it's been good. Like I, you know, I've been able to travel a lot more, I've been able to visit people more. And I've just like felt much happier with my day to day and no more like 
I'm not dreading Monday. Like what day? Today's Monday. <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> dreading. I didn't dread it as I was for the last, you know, five, six years. I always look forward to Mondays now because I get to record a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was awesome. I love, love, love that you do what you do without regard to what other people think. And that's, you know, that's just, that's really impressive. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a lot about like money is like being comfortable with you and not having to feel like I need to keep up with everyone else around me or like I have to do what everyone else around me is doing. Exactly. That is so perfect. Okay, well, now it is time for the famous four questions. These are the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Kevin, are you ready? I am, yep. What is your favorite finance book? Yeah, so my favorite one is probably uh, J.L. Collins' Simple Path to Wealth. That's the one that like, when I first found that like whole stock series thing, it was like really made it seem much easier than I thought investing and everything was. And that is the book like and now it's in a book form, which is even better. That's like the book I tell everyone if they just are like trying to figure out how money works. Like I'm like, just get this book. Like this book is going to change like your life. That is an excellent book. And Jim was on our podcast episode 20, where we asked him all about that, that book and the, uh, the, the very simple path to wealth. Love it. What was your biggest money mistake? Yeah, for me, it was, um, when I was in college, so I, you know, I had like jobs and stuff in college and because like my parents were able to cover me, I didn't have very many expenses. And so all the money I made in college, I just spent it all on like clothes. And, like No, not even Natty Light. It was like on clothes and stuff. I had no business buying. I would like buy like Lacoste polos and, <laughs> and really expensive stuff that I don't have at all. And when I look back on it, it's like, oh man, I really wish I had put that away or like at least like not spent all of it because when I graduated like from college, like I'd been work, I'd like work jobs that whole four years and I had zero dollars, like nothing left to show for it, even though I had like no expenses. So it's like it was all spent on like clothes and stuff that I don't have anymore. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Too bad you hadn't discovered the Goodwill outlet yet. You right, go right. Dig through the bins. But you see, back then I was like trying to show off how like awesome I was, so I like wouldn't have wanted to go to that. Right, I only wanted to buy like the fancy stuff at the mall or whatever. Yeah, but that one that you pull out of the bin looks the same as the one you bought at the mall. Right, but I would know that it wasn't, and yeah. then that would get me. Like, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I need them to know that, like. <laughs> What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Yeah. So my best piece of advice for people starting out is just to not be afraid of trying things. Um, I think that, you know, we get a lot into our head. And at least for me too, it's like, you know, you can't make any mistakes, right? When you're, when you're, uh, start, like when you're like growing up and whatever. And it's like, life is so long, you know? And I look at it and like when I was in my 20s, like the reason I went to law school was like, oh, I don't want to like take any chances trying something else, seeing if I can do something else. And like in retrospect, I wish I had like given myself that permission to like try things and maybe fail, maybe make it, but like just try it, especially while I was young, like really young, because there's like life is just so long and we just have so many opportunities today. And I think that 
the way we're taught to like just stay in your lane and just do that like from the time you know you know how like when we're kids like they kind of like shuttle us all into different things right and like you're kind of told like this is what you're supposed to do and i just think that that doesn't work anymore just because there's so many more opportunities to like do different things and like see what is out there oh that's a really that's a really interesting perspective we didn't we haven't heard before but I think, you know, I think that I can relate here because also coming from a kind of upper middle class background where parents paid for college and stuff, it was like, oh, I have to do everything perfect, get just straight A's, be on the sports team, go to the good college, get the fast line career and like the, the Fortune 500 company was kind of similar dynamic to the wall, but yeah. shift. And it wasn't like, oh, let's experiment with 20 different things here. It was here's what seems like the best, the good options, go with them and go all in. Right, exactly. And it's like kind of funny because like, I mean, we act like, oh, if we do something wrong when we're like 22, that's going to like impact our life. It's like, probably not, you know? And like, I, there's a scene in um one of the Transformers movies. It's like Transformers 3 or something where the Shia LaBeouf, the main character, he's like trying to get a job outside of college, right? And he's like interviewing with like this John Malkovich character. And the dude in the like interview is like, this first job is critical. It determines your life. And I'm like, what? There is no, that is like crazy. <laughs> but that's like how some of us think. It's like 22, we need to like get it right, right then. Because if we don't, that's it, we're done. And it's just, it's crazy, I, I think. <laughs> Spend less than you earn and do what you love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is crazy. And I have to tell you, I have changed careers now three times. This is my third different career And, you know, the first one was interesting, but I always felt like a fraud. I was a graphic designer, but I always felt like I didn't know what I was doing. My second one, I was a, I I sold quilting supplies and I loved it, but it didn't pay very well. And then I stayed home to have kids. We had been flipping houses forever and this job at Bigger Pockets popped up and I'm like, I love this. This is, this is my end career. I won't do anything else after bigger pockets. This is like where I will spend the remainder of my working life. And it's it's because I love it. So if you find something that you think you like and then you start working in it and you decide, oh, this isn't for me, it's okay to pivot. And if that happens at 22, if that happens at, you know, I'm not 22, 23. Uh, so, you know, if that if that happens at at 30 or 40, it's okay to pivot and try something else because being happy in your job, feeling confident that you know what you're doing, feeling like you're doing a good job is so much better than whatever high paying job you had before where you felt like a fraud. Same. All right. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? <laughs> yeah. So I'm waiting for your dentist. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't have any jokes I tell at parties. Like I'm not great at puns and those kind of things, but my uh my niece always has her joke that she says. And so her joke is always, you know, uh, why did the banana go to the doctor? Because he wasn't peeling well. <laughs> ah, I love it. <laughs> and she always says it and laughs so hard. And so that's the joke that that's the only joke I know. <laughs> and do you want to give her a shout out? Uh, no, she's just, that's a shout out for her. That's a shout out. Okay. <laughs> well, on a related note, do you know what Beethoven's favorite fruit is? Uh, no. The banana. banana. Okay. That's, fine. that's my banana joke. All right. Bananas. Yeah. A lot of jokes of bananas. Where can people find out more about you? 
Yeah, they can find me at my blog, uh, financialpanther.com. And on there, I you know write about like financial independence and money and uh, all these side hustles that I do. You can also find me on uh, Twitter at financialpanth with so no R at the end because it wouldn't fit. Uh, and I'm <laughs> trying to get my Instagram going. So you can find me on Instagram at the underscore financial panther. And we will have links to all of these in our show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow107. Kevin, thank you so much for today. This was awesome. These side hustles that you shared, people can do almost anywhere. And it's not, I'm, I'm assuming this doesn't take that much time out of your life that you can go and do whatever it is you want to do that makes you truly happy. And, you know, probably also make a dollar because you're riding your bike. And by the way, I could just make a delivery on that route. And I just think that's so great. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, I, somebody reached out and asked, you have to interview the Financial Panther. I'm like, oh, I just met him at FinCon. So that worked out perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> okay. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. I'll let you get back to uh, scooter plugging in. And, uh, That's and, right. It's almost lunchtime. Yeah, it's almost That's time right. to go rock dogs. I gotta go. Yeah, I gotta go hustle. <laughs> awesome. Right. Okay, well, have a great day. All right. Bye. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.